What happens when we lose an entire language, when it stops being spoken? Well, language loss is something we've been talking about here on Away. A fortnight ago, Professor Jacqueline Troy, who directs Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander research at the University of Sydney, put it this way. There is so much knowledge locked into every language. You can imagine when an entire language goes out of use, we lose not just one, if you like, um, edition of an encyclopedia, we also lose all the other related histories, knowledges, the sciences, you know, the understanding of country, the relationships between people, the poetry, the art, all the things that make us human. We lose a little bit of our humanity every time an Indigenous language stops being spoken. Indeed, any time any language, but, you know, the Indigenous languages of the, one, of the world are the ones that are most under threat and are least valued, which is crazy. But of course, when people really have to face up to what language loss is, then it starts to be valued. Often when a language is on the brink of going to sleep, you know, um, all languages can be woken up again, but it takes a lot of effort. Jacqueline Troy speaking on a way a fortnight ago. Now, I was on a panel at the Sydney Writers' Festival in May where the question was put, what do we lose when a language dies? Now, I don't like that terminology. Dying is not the operative way we speak about Aboriginal languages anymore. The question really is, what do we keep? What do we preserve when a language is maintained? What do we acquire when a language is revived, when it's brought back from the brink? Joel Davison is a Gadigal and Dungadi man. He's worked in the education department at Sydney's Royal Botanic Gardens and as a web developer at an Indigenous media business. As a teacher, he was closely involved in a Gadigal language revival project called Bayala for the Sydney Festival earlier this year. Russ Rhyme is an author, editor and journalist. He's written about the disappearance of languages for National Geographic. And Nick Enfield is a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney and the host of the panel. Over to you, Nick. We're at Dawes Point on the foreshore of Sydney Harbour. Now, the question of interest is what is lost when a language goes away or stops being spoken? Um, and from the point of view of, li- of linguistics, there's really sort of three points here that are, that are typically made. So one thing that's lost is something of interest to science, the science of language and the science of culture. So language and culture are both um, things that any scholar of humanity is going to be, have to be interested in. Uh, so, you know, the next time you meet a language that's never been documented before, you're learning something new about the capacity for human communication. So that's being lost when a language... Uh, is lost if it hasn't been if that language hasn't been studied before, and of course the language also embodies aspects of our cultures. A second thing that is lost is something that many authors have talked about. One that comes to mind is Benjamin Lee Whorf, uh, who wrote a lot about this in the first half of the 20th century, and he um, he pointed out that we're actually oblivious to many of the sort of uh, ways in which our own native language directs our attention and makes us kind of think and see the world. He, he said that uh, it's like, um, you know, the, the, it's a bit like a sort of fish who's swimming in the water and doesn't know what water is. You're surrounded by your language and you don't see uh, what is sort of um, uh, unique about it. But the way to see it is to learn other languages. 
uh, and that's what he recommended, not from a scientific point of view, but from the point of view of being a person and being a well-rounded person and being a person who can see things in new ways. He, he recommended learning Native American languages for this reason. A third thing that's often talked about that's lost um, when languages are lost has to do with human identity. Uh, and so all languages are connected to the identities of the communities that speak them, and this is, of course, one of the most uh, heartfelt and important sort of aspects of language loss today. Uh, and um, I'm sure we'll be touching on those questions of identity uh, and um, community belonging that have to do with the loss of language and with the rekindling and the revitalizations uh, of languages that are, that are happening around the world. So these are some of the themes I hope we're going to be touching on. Um, and so what I'd like to do now is uh, turn over the floor, firstly, uh, to Russ. Um, so my involvement with this issue and my understanding of, of the language questions um, is probably less intimate than um, displayed by uh, your other guests here uh, today. Um, particularly because I, I, don't, I haven't investigated Australian languages and I'm not a native uh, speaker of, of any um, uh, indigenous language. I'm a journalist. I, I have uh, traveled uh, around the world uh, doing stories, uh, and in particular the National Geographic story that uh, Nick was alluding to, um, uh, where languages are, uh, uh, have been discovered or are being studied. Um, that are small, endangered, uh, or in the case of one of the languages I visited, uh, the case of uh, Tuvan, uh, spoken by uh, people in Tuva uh, in, um, in Siberia, uh, a language that was slated to be extinct and expected to be wiped out by uh, its particular uh, colonial overseer, only to uh, rebound. So one thing we can talk about is why some languages rebound and, and others uh, disappear. Um, in addition to Tuvan, uh, for that story, I visited the Aka people in uh, the Lesser Himalayas of India in Arunachal Pradesh, which is the northern, northeasternmost um, state in India. On the question that Nick raised um, of what's lost when a language is lost, um, I would add that uh, a lot of the scientific value that, uh, that a language contains um, it can be very uh, directly understood by thinking about biodiversity. Um, the situation with languages is very much uh, like the situation with uh, species. Uh, but in addition to that, um, languages contain uh, tremendous clues to the meaning, to biodiversity, to the meaning of biodiversity, to, uh, to what's going on in that particular natural environment where the language is spoken. And this is because... Um, indigenous languages are often spoken by people who are very close to the land. I mean, their survival depends on uh, their subsistence from the nature around them, and they're extremely acute observers. And so scientists recently have picked up on the fact that, uh, yes, I'm a biologist, that's linguistics, I don't care about linguistics, but actually my bio bi biological knowledge, uh, a lot of that is contained in the, in the local language. And when a language disappears, uh, a lot of our understanding of the local uh, biome disappears with it. And, and then I would add one more um, aspect of what's lost, and that's on the cultural end. When one of the Komkaik um, elders told me one day, uh, it's of a phrase, a, a common saying in Seri or, or 
Kamiki Tom. And that was, uh, the, the saying holds that inside every person there's a flower, and inside of the flower is a word. Um, they, consider, um, they consider language to be the most inherent part of a person's identity and their cultural identity. And, um, you know, the, the same elder said to me, if, it, if, if one child grows up speaking kamikitom and another child grows up speaking Spanish, they will, they will become different people. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, our, our other guests here will have a lot more of an intimate understanding of how that works on the ground, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to hearing that. Is this... This is working. Um, yeah, thanks, Russ. That's really great to hear kind of global perspective. I, like Russ, am a journalist, uh, so with no particular expertise in linguistics or in language, except as a passionate observer of Aboriginal culture here, as an Aboriginal man, uh, as a person who's experienced language loss, um, and as someone who is engaged, I think, I'm fairly active in, uh, in language revival in, in one way, in that we've started a project at uh, RN called Word Up, and every week we invite uh, a speaker, a language speaker, the speaker of an Aboriginal language or a Torres Strait Islander language, to come onto the show and share three words. And the philosophy, the premise behind Word Up is that if we share language, it won't become dead, it won't die. And the, the kind of journey that I've been on in, in, in kind of doing my bit for language revival has been, you know, it's, it's been always moving, and, but I also think it's very practical too. And a lot of the comments about the Word Up series uh, as it goes to air, uh, you know, some are quite negative about the value of Aboriginal languages. Um, but I, my philosophy is if it makes a racist upset, it's probably worth doing. Um, I would like to also acknowledge the fact that we're in a really highly significant place in terms of uh, cultural exchange and transmission uh, here on this site at Dawes Point because uh, just over there, I think, Joel, um, one of Joel's uh, countrywomen, Pachigarang, uh, and uh, a naval officer by the name of William Dawes uh, started a, a, a process whereby Pachigarang, the young woman, started sharing her language, the Sydney language, the Gadigal language, the Darug language, uh, with William Dawes. And he made very forensic, detailed notes which uh, survive in the School of Oriental Studies in London, of all places. So Pachigarang's cultural knowledge as a young woman, uh, was passed to this young man, Dawes, after whom Dawes Point is named. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of caught up with the kind of significance of, of where, we, where we meet and the fact that, you know, um, at the very first moment of colonisation, at that brute point of colonisation, this young woman, Pachigarang, is sharing her language and doing so for no other reason than um, she wanted to. And uh, Dawes obviously felt that it was something he wanted to do as well. I, I go back to not what is lost when, when a language dies, because in many ways we can't know what is lost. How do we know what is lost? Um, but in terms of Australia and in terms of this continent, what I think can be gained by learning 
or knowing or uh, just absorbing some of that information, it, it changes your perspective. You know, you can bet that wherever you go in this country, an Aboriginal person's already named that hill, they've already named that river, they've already named that point of the harbour. So, and they've, they've got words for, you know, relationships to country, relationships to landforms, rela relationships to the elements, relationships to each other, most importantly. Um, so those words already exist and they just need to be unearthed and you know they need to be put back into the mouths and they need to be literally ha they literally need to have uh, life breathed into them so i don't think of i don't think of dying or of death although those are obviously those are the terms that we might use when we talk about um, language extinction i prefer to think of and all people have been saying this for a long time think about languages as being asleep dormant um, and they're just waiting for their children and their grandchildren their great-grandchildren to start speaking them again so that's where I come at this question of of death and dying and loss um, what I think is lost can be regained um, thanks Dan and I know from that that Dan and I are in tune with a lot of these things I'm a fairly pragmatic person so a lot of about what I'm going to bring to the conversation um, on what we could potentially lose by letting a language die or fade away is coloured by uh, my experiences and the value that I see in the language as a way to combat a lot of the problems that the Indigenous community faces. It's no secret to us that uh, traditional custodians today face an array of problems and I think a lot of these and I might just be a little bit naive because I'm young, um, but I think a lot of these are born in ignorance rather than malice. And uh, a big part of that is the education that we have in Australia. Um, you know, someone, if a teacher doesn't necessarily empathize with Indigenous struggles, they're not going to teach the black history correctly. And even if they are somewhat passionate, the curriculum that we have, for the most part, doesn't really tell the story before colonization. It tells us how everything was lost, but it doesn't tell us what was lost or why the struggle was significant. Um, and then you have teachers who are even more passionate than that, and they go out of their way to find resources outside of the curriculum uh, and bring them back into the classroom. Bless them. Um, but when they do, they often find that they're lacking in resources that they can go out and, you know, there are some great people out there doing work, tours and uh, culture and heritage and, you know, it's great, but um, it's usually hard to find. We don't have a connected network of them and, you know, maybe not enough to construct a whole curriculum around unless we really get all of these people in a room. Um, so really, our high school education, it creates an environment where children don't feel engaged, where they don't really see the value of what was being threatened back then. It doesn't give them much to be proud of in Indigenous culture. Uh, it doesn't explain that. Um, so for me, the language is a great way to introduce people to that. It's a great way to sort of uh, onboard them into the culture and the heritage and what's great about it and what we can be proud of. 
Um, and that's just because, you know, the language and culture, uh, and this will be no duh to all of you, but um, I really am surprised to see how many people don't consider this, but language and culture, you can't separate them. You can't learn language without learning culture. I like to say, you know, the language is not dead, um, but that's not to say that dead or dying is not a useful uh, descriptor. You know, there are different, there's different language for different purposes. For Dan and I, of course, we're trying to revitalize the language. If you say it's dead, someone's gonna, no one's going to say, oh, revitalize that dead language. Um, for me, the language that I like to use is that it's embers. I'm holding the embers of this language. When I teach you the language, of course it's okay for you to speak it, you're holding the embers. And there's tinder all around us. And we need to light that tinder and revitalize the language. Uh, and, you know, if we lose that, we lose that valuable launching point. We lose that way to onboard the next generation into our culture in a positive way. We, you know, potentially lose that generation uh, of people who won't grow up in unwilling ignorance. Uh, and, yeah, that's, that's really the, the main part for me that I think is at risk of being lost. And, you know, um, as uh, Joel's talking, I'm flashing on um, an incident that I, I think brings home for me the importance of what uh, he's doing and what Dan's doing. And it was um, a, a night when we were um, invited to have dinner around uh, in, in a, you know, one of the traditional huts in Paliji in, in India. And as the, you know, there was a fire in the middle of the room, smoke was going through the roof, and there was this kind of board structure, the plank structure that we were sitting on, and the only light was the fire. And a young man uh, who lived in the house um, was, and this is in a village that has no electricity, so it has no um, television or radio or anything of the sort, no internet. The villagers there had never seen a dollar bill and asked me if I could show them one. I was so pleased I didn't have a dollar bill with me to uh, interrupt that innocence. But um, um, Pario Nemeso was sitting next to me, young man, 25. He taught at the Jesuit school, um, speaker of Akka, also Hindi and, and English. Um, and he, he left for a little while, and he came back, and he said he had something he wanted to show me. And it was uh, a, a fairly a dirty, small cloth that he opened to reveal these items. Uh, the jaw of a river perch, uh, a tiger's tooth, uh, a, a crystal. Um, and he explained that these were, this was the shaman's kit that his father had used uh, and that his father's father had used uh, before him uh, to, uh, to, for medicinal purposes and, and, and shaman purposes um, uh, in the village. And I asked him, well, your grandfather and your father um, are, are, you the, are you the next shaman? And he said, no. Um, his father had died before he could teach him the spells, and without the language, the items were useless. Um, um, the, the, the connection between cultural practice and, and language is, um, is, is an intense one. And um, the, uh, the thing that allows a language to, to, to die or to succeed, come back from the brink, um, um, was a question I put to uh, speakers in all three of the places that I went, and the, language was, the answer was always the same. Um, as a, one of the Jesuit priests and uh, Paligi told me, it's a one-word answer. It's 
pride. You know, I was traveling with linguists. There's linguists involved uh, in creating orthographies or, or helping to document the, the languages in each of these places. But linguists can't save language. That comes from inside and comes from the speakers themselves. And a big indicator is uh, how much pride uh, those, those speakers have in their language. That pride is another aspect that I, th I hear you talking about as you, as you bring these things up. Mm. You could just sort of maybe pick up on that um, and, and um, you know, come back to Daniel and Joel. So this question about pride, um, you know, Russ said earlier on that there's a, you're talking about the, the Tuvar language, was it, saying that, you know, here's a group that was, uh, you know, where, where, where people were saying, oh, this, is, this language is going to become extinct, it's going to be lost. And then, surprisingly, it, it wasn't that the people, you know, uh, held on to it and kept it going and so forth. And anywhere you go around the world, you're going to find languages that are, you know, uh, not looking, their future is not looking bright. Um, and this is a really big difference between different groups, that some of them are, um, you know, some of the groups are sort of very invested in maintaining their language, doing stuff like singing in the language, writing it down, all this sort of stuff. And others, just not at all. So I work in Laos, and that's a, there's a lot of languages spoken in that area. And you can, you can really see that some groups are, are quite interested in their language. They will try to you know, get their kids to speak it. Others are like, no, it's not good for our kids to learn our language. They should be learning the majority language of the country. We don't want people coming and telling us, you want to you know, maintain this, this wretched language. You know? Um, so that's a, it's an ethical kind of dilemma for linguists, right? That, that, that they're being, you know, as, just, as Russ just mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a uh, now it's kind of recognized among linguists that you mustn't go into a community and say, oh, you know, you guys have to not abandon your language if, if the current sort of view of the community is that that's what they want to do. This, of course, doesn't, you know... Um, the, the choices of a community now might be very different from the choices of the descendants of that community in the future, and that's, of course, what we're experiencing in Australia right now. So what would you sort of advise uh, if, if, if we were to sort of learn from the current experience in Australia that, 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 that you've just been speaking about? Um, you know, and if you could go to Laos or if you go to you know, any of the many countries around the world where, where small communities are actually saying, yeah, we don't want our kids to learn our language because it's going to send them back, you know, etc. Well, how, how to deal with that? I think, the, I think the best way to deal with that is potentially uh, you know, to set them an example where their children can learn the language but still be uh, you know, successful in the majority <laughs> society. Um, you know, it's definitely not impossible to do both. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting that you bring up those examples because it's something our community faces a lot where a lot of people were denied the language because if their children were caught speaking the, uh, speaking the language, they'd get taken away. Um, so we do have a history of that and uh, that's contributed to the position that we're in. But I think, yeah, uh, you know, it's, you always have to be careful, respect their wishes, um, but you know, learn from international examples as well and show them examples where it has happened. I think precisely because of the history here with you know, depriving people of their languages as a stake in kind of a colonialism, a very powerful, um, inexorable stake in colonialism, that's why there's so much passion and, and power in Aboriginal people learning their languages 
lost or dying or dead languages. There's an extraordinary power in it. And, you know, I just know that when I, when I meet people who do speak their languages or are, who are in the process of learning their languages, the effect it has on their lives is extraordinary. I mean, they're even talking about, you know, and if we take this view that language encodes, you know, subjectivity and encodes cultural knowledge, it encodes relationships to the earth, um, to other people, to everything in an ecology of beings, if you take that as the view, then absolutely, you know, Aboriginal languages, um, we should all invest time in them. Um, but when I see the effect that, that speaking uh, languages has on the speakers and the kind of passion and the generosity that comes through those exchanges, I am... I'm struck and I'm moved. And I don't want to over-emote, but um, <clears throat> it is very powerful. Uh, and to the question, yes, what you were talking about before is a real factor of, um, the, of the elders in a, in a language group kind of militating against the language because they don't want their kid to be confined to uh, their village. They want them to get out and, and work in Bombay or Shanghai or uh, uh, London or someplace. So there is a, a huge pressure that comes internally within families <clears throat> that way. But at the same time, we shouldn't make the mistake of, of uh, mythologizing uh, these uh, villagers speaking small languages as isolates. Mm. I mean, um, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in most places where I've been, especially I've spent some time in Nigeria and in, in small uh, towns mm -hmm. and villages, and the average villager in, in, um, in um, Nigeria who has never left the village speaks three tribal languages mm -hmm. and English. And if they, if they live uh, near a francophone border, they speak French also. Mm. I mean, they're, they're not language primitives by virtue of being in uh, uh, native speakers of a small language. They're, uh, they're language sophisticates. Mm. Um, it's, the, it's the speakers of large languages that often end up being the isolates. Um, and so um, the virtues and the cultural virtues of speaking uh, a, a small language, I don't think they're diluted uh, if you therefore are exposed to other languages. That's mm. not the danger. Uh, the danger is missing that that uh, that central component of the of the language tied to the land, tied to your uh, cultural group, tied to your your mm -hmm. upbringing. Okay, well, please join me in thanking our panelists, Joel, Daniel, and us. Professor of Linguistics at the University of Sydney, Mick Enfield, along with journalist Russ Reimer and Gadigal man Joel Davison and myself, speaking at the Sydney Writers' Festival a few weeks back.